are teaching through the book of Acts, but today is a strategically designed stop in Acts, and we have a free weekend, but we're going to talk specifically about the church. That's the topic today. We're going to look at it in this topical fashion of what is the church, what is the importance of it, and why is it so significant um, today, and we're going to look at two primary places, Ephesians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, start in Ephesians chapter 3, open your Bibles up, open your apps up, whatever it might be as you get there. Uh, before we start in the message today, um, we want to take a moment to honor Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a holiday in our country that honors uh, those who have died in battle, um, in the military, and the Bible's very clear that we would give honor and respect where honor and respect are due. And so today we really want to honor and respect those individuals who have given their lives and at the same time those of you who are in this room that have lost a loved one that was in military service, uh, we want to give honor and respect to you. At the same time, I also want to acknowledge that there are many who didn't actually lose their physical lives, but in many ways, because of what they encountered in war and encountered in battle, are dealing with substantial PTSD. Many of them lost their lives and have mental health issues, and uh, many of them are homeless and on the streets. And so we want to kind of extend Memorial Day to them as well and pray for them and honor them and honor all of you as families as well. Uh, the second big thing I think that's really important to remind ourselves when we do a moment like this is this reality that for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, um, we can honor and thank God for our national citizenship in the United States of America, but our citizenship in the kingdom of God always surpasses our national citizenship. And that's true of anybody in any nation at any time. And there are more people being killed for their faith today, experts would say, than any time in the history of the world. So we want to also, in our prayer, honor the martyrs um, in the midst of this. And then lastly, uh, the Bible tells us that no greater love has this than someone lay down their life for their friends, which is epitomized in Jesus. That of all people that can honor sacrificial death, it's those who know that the world will be restored because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Um, so these things really do connect um, as we understand it. So on that note, let's pray. <clears throat> God, as we start this prayer, I want to acknowledge that when Christ returns, your word tells us that swords will be turned into plowshares, that you are the prince of peace. And your ultimate desire for this world is not war, um, but God, it's peace under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And yet, in this world of sin, you tell us that governments have militaries and don't bear the sword for nothing. And we have those who fought for our freedoms that we want to honor, acknowledge, um, and esteem this morning. We thank you for them. Uh, we thank you for the United States of America <clears throat> and for the country that we live in. Um, but God, we also want to thank you above and beyond for the kingdom of God that you have brought us into, um, that you have made us citizens of this kingdom, uh, which surpasses any national kingdom. And we think about those who've given their lives <clears throat> for the king of all kings. And we thank you for them and for how you grow the church through the suffering of the church. So we end with thanking you for Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice for the restoration of the whole world and for the final and full payment of sin. 
It's in Christ's name we pray, and it's in Christ we want to hear from today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There is a leadership guru right now uh, that if you YouTube his names, TED Talks will come up and lectures will come up. His name is Simon Sinek. He wrote a book called Start With Why. And Simon Sinek goes into organizations and to businesses and to large corporations, and he speaks to individuals as well, and he'll say, almost every company, organization, and even individual for that matter, knows what they do, right? If we get together right now and we say, what do you do? You sit by someone on a plane, you even sit by someone at church, they'll say, their job right after. We know what we do, and most of us know how we do it. But Simon Sinek says the most missing part of any organization all the way down to someone's personal life is the question of, but why do you do it? We need to start with why. We need to, don't need to wait to get to why, Simon Sinek says. He says we need to start with why because the why is the purpose. The why is the reason. The why is the meaning to what we do. So as we come today and we've been studying through the book of Acts, my question is the why of the local church. And there's a bunch of people in this room, if you've been around church for a long time or even a short time, that you go, yeah, church, I mean, I like some of it. I like a lot of it. You know, I try to get there maybe once a month or something like that. Yes, but why is it there? And is it that significant? Let me tell you a little bit of my story. I did not grow up in the church. I've told some of you guys this before. I, had, I attended some churches, but it was really sparing when my grandmother would get me to go begrudgingly. Um, I'd go to Inglewood United Methodist Church um, just outside the city limits of Denver and never liked it much and certainly knew what it was. It was church. I knew how they did it, which I didn't like very much, which is why I didn't want to go very much, but I never understood why. I come to Christ at about 17 years old, and I start hearing little rumblings at times about, you need to go to church. You need to go to church. So I end up coming to Arizona, and I know I need to go to church. So for two years, I would go to a church on Sunday, but it didn't have to be the same church. My interpretation of church, when people said church is important, just meant go to a service, show up on Sunday, and go to church. Then I was around some ministries. I was an athlete, and so I really liked this idea of my newfound faith being connected to the sport that I was playing, which was baseball. So I encountered ministries like Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Athletes in Action, which is the sports ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. And I loved those. And it took a leader in Athletes in Action to teach me one summer from 2 Corinthians about the body so if you don't know this, in the Bible, the church is called the body of Christ. And it talks about how a body needs to operate together. And this guy that was teaching made a connection of you need to commit yourself to one local church. That was incredibly paradigm shifting for me. I didn't never heard that before. I didn't know that. Um, I knew being in a worship service was important, but I thought that was church. And he began to say things like, Church is not just somewhere you go, it's a community you are a part of. Church is not a building, church is a people, and a people that you covenant with and can actually live amongst. That was super paradigm shifting. 
So then I moved into this stage where people would say the local church is important and you need to be a part of one because the Bible tells you so. And at that point, I was like, I want to do what the Bible says because the Bible's God's word and I want to honor God and God seems wise. So I just started saying it and I'd trumpet. The local church is important because the Bible says so. And we get in environments like that a lot. And if you're at a certain point where you go, I don't know a lot about these things, but the Bible says so, we should do it. God's wise. But I had not yet been brought to this point of, but why is the local church important? Why? Get underneath it. What's the purpose of the church? What is it ultimately? And why is it important? So we're going to look today at three things. The local church is central to where God's taking all of human history. The local church is strategic. And the local church is worth it. So from Ephesians chapter 3, let's get at this first thing. The local church is central to where God is taking all of human history. The local church is central. Now, I'm going to add to it this statement. The central to where God is taking and has always been taking all of human history. Now, if you're sitting here right now, what you should say is, that sounds a little lofty, right? Like this, this thing that we're a part of, central to where God's taking all of human history. Or that little church I was a part of, central to where God's taking all of human history. And I want to say to you, yes, and it's not just something that I say, but it's something that Paul said. And before we read this passage, here's what I want to say to you, just to come right down to you. So look at me for a minute, and I want to tell you. The bulk of all of us in this room right now have a very underestimated view of the purpose and power of the located local church. So it's truncated, that may be a word you don't know, meaning it's way smaller than it actually should be. And for most of us, our view of the church is massively self-absorbed. Most of us look at the church as what it can do for us. We look at the church like it's like any other thing we drive to today to get something from. But we just go, this one is just a dispenser of religious goods and services where In-N-Out Burger's a dispenser of hamburgers and french fries that I like. So I look at the church and I go, which one does it for me? Give me the one that will just dispense for me the religious goods and services that I want. And let me just start by saying that's really problematic. We'll get more to that um, as the morning goes on. But most of us don't understand what this really is. How many of you remember when I was a kid, there was a cartoon that was then turned into a movie called Transformers? Give me the raise your hand. How many of you guys remember the Transformers? I loved the Transformers. I'd sit down in front of the television and I'd wait for this cartoon to come on. And the opening song to Transformers would end with this real baritone, robotic sounding voice. And it would say, Transformers more than meets the eye. And here's what transformers were. Transformers were like these vehicles or machines that all of a sudden would transform and they had little figurines that I'd buy. And you could take this truck and then move it around and all of a sudden it'd turn into this like big superhero robotic thing like Optimus Prime, right? And you'd be like, yes, but I love that when it'd say transformers more than meets the eye. This is what Paul's about to tell you. The church, there's a lot more than meets the eye. Your mundane, 
natural experience of going to church, your Sunday morning wake up, opening your eyes, really? Like, okay, gosh, I got to do something Monday through Friday and now I got to go to church. Your experience of like, I don't even know if I like these people. There's way more than meets the eye. Look at the way Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3. Starting in verse 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his, that's God's power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, this grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look at the language Paul uses. The unsearchable riches. It's so big, it's unsearchable, the riches that Christ offers. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So look at the language. He's going, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The plan that was the mystery, this mystery that was hidden for ages in God. Now, if you're sitting in this room and you're not even a Christian, this language should go, if there's unsearchable riches of Christ, a mystery that was hidden for ages in God, that he says being brought about by the gospel, that sounds interesting. I want of that. This God who created not some things, but all things. Now look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I'm suffering, which is for your glory. Can you go back to verse 10? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Now, if you're honest, you'd read that in, the, in Ephesians, and if you slowed down long enough, you'd go, wait a minute. Through the church, like this, the church that I experience, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to whom? <clears throat> now, if you follow the whole course of the Bible, the church, the people of God, right? Not just what happens in between the four walls in a building that people call the church, but the people, the community that God's forming through this people that were around, the manifold wisdom of God in the Bible is to be told to all the rest of the world, all of those who don't believe. But he says not only that, here he says the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So the teaching of the Bible is there's always more than meets the eye. There is angelic realms and there's demonic realms and there's uh, an individual, a fallen angel that was Lucifer that's now called Satan. There's reality that when you walk in the real world, and again, regardless of who you are, whether you believe or you don't believe, you have these moments where you know and you feel like there's more than this. Like there's stuff going on that affects this in the here and now. And I'm not certain about it. So there's always this sense in so many people, there's more than meets the eye. And the Bible gives what that is. Well, there are rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Colossians 1 says that Christ created all things, the things that we can see and the things that we can't see. Well, it's through the church, the Bible would say, that we're to make known God's manifold wisdom. Another word would be his glory, his greatness, how unbelievable he is that through us, the people who believe, the world would know and the rulers in heavenly places would know. 
So when I say the church is central to where God's taking all of human history, I just want to start off by going, it's not my idea, right? So you can believe it or you can say you don't believe it, but the Bible says it. So if that's true and you go, yeah, I believe the Bible, but my experience of church doesn't sound that thrilling. That sounds like epic, like better than any epic movie. That's not what I experience. What I want to submit to you this morning is that what you experience in the mundane, in what you and I call the natural, even in the failures of the church, is all part of God's strategic design to show his manifold wisdom. Before we do that, I want to chart for you very briefly what the church is and who the people of God were always meant to be. So God created all things. This passage says this, right? God created all things and he upholds all things. He created Adam and Eve. If you are in here and you've never read Genesis 1 through 3, read it because it really is not just the beginning of the Bible. It's the foundation of everything. So God makes the world and he says it's all good. He creates Adam and Eve, and he was always intending that those he created would live their lives in dependence and in intimate relationship with him. His desire is that they would always walk with him, as Adam and Eve did in the cool of the garden, saying, God is the way. Like, follow him. God is truth. Let us live in his reality. God is life. Let us live with him. But now one comes into the biblical story in Genesis chapter 3 and begins to question God's word to God's creation. Did he really say that? No, he didn't. He just doesn't want you to be happy. If you actually do what I say, and he presents this false word to say, if you do what I say, then you'll actually be able to be like God. And Adam and Eve believe a lie rather than experiencing life in God and knowing God through obeying his word, we believe a false word and God's word comes true. That if you eat of the tree, I told you not to eat. Live it up in the Garden of Eden. It's all there. There's only one tree. You have everything, but there's only one tree. Don't eat of that. Satan says eat of it. They eat of it. And the world falls into sin. So in the biblical story, which we believe is true truth, there's a reason for why the world struggles why war is in the world, why fighting inside our homes is real, why there's relational discord of all types and all kinds, of why life is hard is because we've disobeyed God's good word, all of us. But that moment was significant. At that moment, in Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent who gave the false word, you're not going to win. He basically says, over my dead body will you win, and makes a promise at that point that he says, listen, this world that I made for myself, by me was it made, it was made for me to live in life, to live in truth, to have the way, to experience abundant life. You have lost in sin. You've sought to seek it out, to kill it and to destroy it. You won't win. So he says, I'm gonna reconcile and restore, bring back to myself the whole of the world and I'm gonna do it by calling a people. Now hear me when I say this, I'm going to do it by calling a people. So he calls Abraham. He says, through you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. That nation is called the nation of Israel. Side note, star, the nation, current modern nation state of Israel, if you follow the biblical story, is not a direct parallel 
to this, okay? Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, why do you think you're great? That you're Jews? That you're of the nation of Israel? I can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Then Paul says, not all of Israel is Israel, okay? But Israel as the people of God, God calls and he says, listen, you are to embody. By embody, I just mean in your everyday lives. All of life, they would have wrote on their t-shirts. All of life is all for Yahweh, right? All of life, we say that this is here as all of life's all for Jesus. All of life is all for Yahweh. So they prayed multiple times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is no other. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? All of life, heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything I do is all for Yahweh and in service to my neighbor. So God formed a people to say through this nation and this people, all of the other nations of the earth, will know Yahweh's the way, Yahweh's truth, Yahweh's life. So as you read the Old Testament, you're going, gosh, there's all these laws, these ways to live. Ultimately, what God is saying is live this way that the world may know Yahweh's king, Yahweh's Lord. So Israel seeks to live like that. Now, if you read your Bible very much, let me ask you this question. Does Israel succeed in fulfilling the calling to live the way God told them to live? No. Okay? They don't. They fail. And ultimately, God then says, your ultimate problem is not a behavior problem, but your behavior comes from a certain place, which is called your heart. So he says, I'm going to make with you a new covenant. And in this covenant, I'm going to take out of you a heart of stone that's stuck on self. And I'm going to put into you a heart of flesh that beats for me, that says, God, I want to love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that beats for other people because you were always meant to live in service to other people. That's why it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. We are happier in giving than in receiving because God made us to orient ourselves first and foremost to him and because of that to other people all the time. That's why he says, love God with all your everything and your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. So the problem with Israel was a heart problem. How was God gonna answer the heart problem? In Jesus, who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. I'm the life, who explicitly says all throughout the Gospels, I'm God. I've come into the world. The only person that can deal with the sin problem is God. So he becomes a human being to show this is what I meant for the people of God. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. So what the Bible says is he becomes the forerunner. He becomes the pioneer. He becomes, Ephesians 5, the one we are to imitate so that in the totality of our life now, when Christ has died to deal with sin, raised to triumph over sin and to give life to all who believe so that those who believe don't just get heaven later, but get it now and live into it because Christ is heaven so that we can now say in the totality of our lives, heart, soul, mind, strength, recreation and occupation, what we do in work, in word and in deed, in everything we can say, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is life. 
God's plan, Titus chapter 2, his desire always was to redeem a people who would be zealous to do what is good. His plan was always, I'm going to show the world my manifold wisdom, my greatness through a people who embody this. Again, let me tell you this. Embody just means live it in our everyday lives. There's an author um, that I've learned a lot from. He's pretty tough sledding to read, but his name is Leslie Newbigin. And Leslie Newbigin has a statement to show how strategic the local church is. The church is central to where God's taking history, but the local church is also strategic. Here's what Newbigin says in a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, a pluralistic society. Last night, my son, Braden, uh, looked at me. It was either last night or the night before. I can't even remember. I'm tired. Um, but he said to me, Dad, there are all these people in the world who don't believe like we believe. Why do we think what we believe is true? They think what they believe is true. Why do we think what we believe is true? There's a line I always use with people who don't believe in, or even people who do believe, but I always say it's, in, it's actually taken from a guy named Alistair McGrath, who's much smarter than I am. But he always says, I'm a Christian from a human perspective. Like these decisions we make, he says, I'm a Christian because I believe the Bible and Christianity makes the best sense of reality. Now, from a theological, meaning God's perspective of this, I'm a Christian, I love God because he first loved me. But from a human perspective, when I'm answering these questions to my kid, hey buddy, I just think it gives the best sense of why the world's in pain, why the world's really, really hard, and at the same time, why the world's really, really good. I think it makes sense of why we're craving things better all the time because God's moving to a better world ultimately. I think it deals with our own sense of like, why aren't we the people we want to be and how do we get there? It's because of sin and he deals with it. But he's asking these questions and what he's asking is, I'm surrounded by all these people at school who believe differently than me. He's asking a question, here's a big word, of pluralism. Not of pluralism as though all views are the same, but this reality of like we live amongst people that are very, very different. That's the question Newbigin's trying to answer in this book. The gospel in a pluralistic society. How do we make the gospel beautiful in a world that believes all kinds of different things? In a world that doesn't believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Here's how he answers it. He says, I've come to feel that the primary reality for which we have to take account in seeking for Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. Stop for a minute. The primary reality for which we have to take an account, if we want to say we want the gospel to impact a world that doesn't believe this, the primary reality we got to think about is the Christian congregation. Not the church... Well, the church is this big thing that's out there, the invisible church, which is a reality. People believe from all over the world, of all generations, of all, but he says if it's going to impact the world, we got to think about a congregation that we can see, taste, touch, be a part of. Keep that up there for a minute, and before we get there, there's a pastor that I really, really like who says this, saying you belong to the church without being a part of a church is like saying you're, a, you're married 
without having a husband or a wife. Saying, well, I'm a part of the church, the church. But if you don't have a church that you're a part of, is like saying you're married without having a husband or a wife. So now Newbegin goes on. He says this. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in, I've read Newbegin, so I know he could say this, in all of human affairs, not just spiritual human affairs, in all of human affairs, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs, all of them, is represented by a man hanging on a cross? How's that going to happen? He says this, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, small interpretation, hermeneutic just means interpretation. The only way the gospel gets interpreted as beautiful and true is in a congregation of men and women who believe it. Now, that should say and in all caps. And show their belief by living it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel. Now, he lists some of those that are evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles, Christian literature. We could add blogs and video sermons, conferences, and even books such as this one, he says, that I'm writing right now. But I am saying these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. Let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying at the end of the day, uh, the day ideas are incredibly powerful. Ideas have to spread. Paul would say we have to take every thought captive in human affairs into the obedience of Christ. But the only way the gospel is tenable is for us to feel it and then experience it in a real believing community. That it isn't just a blog. It isn't just a YouTube video. It's real people that we really touch. It's real people that weep with us when we weep. It's real people that rejoice with us when we rejoice. It's real people, Hebrews 10, that we meet with who spur us on to greater love and greater good deeds. It's real people, the book of Hebrews says, don't forsake meeting with lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's real people who prevent us from sin because we're around them and who promote us and push us to live good lives, loving lives, sacrificial lives lives. It's real people who are with us in crisis. The church, folks, is incredibly strategic. I'm not certain how many of you um, remember the 2007 Fiesta Bowl, which was in your backyard. The Fiesta Bowl's played here. But it was a game of Boise State versus the University of Oklahoma. At the end of the game, nobody believed that Boise State could actually beat Oklahoma, even though they had had a great year. The end of the game, there's this play where the quarterback comes up to the line and they run what's called the Statue of Liberty play. In football, the offensive line is here. And what the Statue of Liberty play is, is the quarterback says hike and the whole offensive team moves to the right. He drops back like he's going to throw a pass, right? He drops back like he's going to throw a pass. The offensive line, everybody's moving this direction and he fake throws a pass. Then he takes the ball and he puts it behind 
his back like this. And as everybody's moving that way, what happens to the defense? They all move that way. Then the running back comes right here, grabs it from behind his back, runs into the left side of the end zone. And everybody in the stadium is going, what just happened? Everybody that's watching on TV who can see it better, small plug for just stay home and watch your TV, <laughs> right? Are going, did that seriously just happen? Well, in a very real way, you go, no, it didn't just happen. That play had to be designed. That play had to be strategized. That play had to be practiced over and over and over again to be delivered upon. When God says the church is central, he doesn't just say it's central. It's central because it's strategic. Because he says, here's what I'm going to do. All over the world, we'll talk right now about North Gilbert, North Chandler, and from the different communities you drive around. He said, I'm going to pull people. I'm going to save people from old to young. I'm going to save people from rich to poor. I'm going to save people that are in all kinds of different industries and kids that go to different schools and people that live in different neighborhoods. And I'm going to save them and I'm going to say, you need to come together as one body so that as you live together, all these people that know you go, where do you know that person from? Oh, they're a part of my church. They don't seem like you at all. And, and what do you do all the time when you go meet with these people? Why? Well, we're studying the Bible together and we're learning these things. And why do you do that? Because we really believe Jesus is life, and I want life. We live in times that are dizzying, and people don't know the way, and we really believe Jesus is the way. We live in a time that everybody says different things are truth, and we really need the truth. People are telling lies and doing all these things, and we believe Jesus is truth. And I want life, so I want people to prevent me from going the way that leads to death, because I want life. I'd rather be in the light than in the darkness and I want people to lead me in that and hear the people that I know and people begin to watch like, you guys all are a part of this thing called the church and you guys are part of different churches that actually get along with each other. They don't even have the name redemption and you guys are, and wait a minute, there are people actually there who are giving money to help other people who don't have as much money and there are people who are asking serious questions about racial tension and in what happens and what this means when Jesus is king and you go yes because this is what the church is the church is supposed to say to the world this is what Jesus looks like this is what life looks like when Jesus is king this is what business practices look like some people skimp their employees so that they can make more money but when Jesus is king you seek to serve your employees and consider their needs as more important than your own this is what race relations look like when Jesus is king this is what youth sports looks like or we're attempting to look like when Jesus is king. And then you say and they say, but yeah, but you guys struggle with all the same things we do. Like why would God strategically make it that he would call broken people, save them, and then in a lot of ways leave them in their brokenness? They struggle with the same things everybody else struggles with. So you're meant to, you're pursuing to live as though Jesus is Lord of all the earth, but you trip and fall as much as you trip and fall? Well, that's strategic design as well, because God's trying to show the world that the Lord, the one true Lord in whom there is no other, is also a savior. So as you pursue and go, I want life, so I want to do what you say. I want to obey your commands. I want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to consider the needs of others as more important than your own. I want to live faithfully. I want to live generously. I want to live with gratitude, but I don't, and you fall. Then you step up and you go, God, empower me to get back up. It's only by your power 
Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then you step up and they go, you fell again. And, I, and we say, but isn't our Lord so gracious? Isn't he so kind? Isn't he the one he said he would always be that he wouldn't leave us or forsake us even because of our failures? Isn't it amazing that you live in a world that when you fail, everybody leaves and forsakes you. But with Jesus, when we fail, he's there to forgive us. That's witness, that's mission. And then you get back up, not to go, well, I can keep falling and I can keep sinning. And should we go on sinning that this grace may abound? And Paul goes, absolutely not. Keep pursuing the ways of God because in the ways of God, in living for him is life, is truth, is the way. The church is so strategic that God says to the church, you need to minister to people in crisis. So people are meant to come here who are in crisis who are baked and caked in addictions and that they can say, Jesus said that he came to set the captives free and he has open arms and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And you have a group of people who are gracious and kind because God's been gracious and kind with them and you begin to be formed in failure, even as you continually fail, formed, pushed towards Jesus, spurred toward love and good deeds, prevented from sin. We are ministered to in crisis for those of us who've experienced broken marriages. This has to be a place not for, oh, that's the place where everybody has their stuff together. No, no, no. This is the place where people come to get their stuff together in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We minister to people in crisis. The church is meant to do that. And it's so beautiful because God says it's meant to do that. And we have to continue to do it. We have here Exodus groups that begin to do that. There's a counseling ministry. Our redemption communities are formed to deal with us as we struggle in life. Christianity is not a place where we bring our brokenness to God, get fixed, and now we're great. Here's what Christianity is. People in need of change helping people in need of change. That's what the church is. People in need of change helping people in need of change. Crisis-oriented ministry, very strategic because we all have crisis at different points. We love crisis-oriented ministry because it's calculable. We can say, here are the number of marriages that were in trouble that we now fix. Here are the number of people that were dealing with addiction that we're now a part of. Here are the number of poor people that we gave food boxes to. Here's the number of poor people that went through an understanding of a financial class to help them get there. Here's the number of people who didn't have knowledge that now have knowledge, whatever it might be. We love that. Could you tell that I just fixed my mic? Um, but here's the thing we don't think about as much is the preventative ministry of the church. Here's what I mean by that. How many people, because they come regularly, this is a plea to come as much as you possibly can, don't forsake the gathering, because they sit under the word of God that's preached, never end up coming to the point of divorce because the word of God is being preached to them on a regular basis. How many people, students, never fall into addiction because they're a part of student ministry? How many of us never compromise our businesses and our financial practice because we're a part of a redemption community? You can't measure that, how do we know that? Here's the number of kids who didn't get DUIs because they were a part of student ministry. But I'm telling you folks, it's thousands. Thousands of marriages are being prevented from brokenness because we're understanding God's unbelievable vision of this. The preventative nature of the local church doing its job is so powerful. So the local church's ministry is crisis-oriented, it's preventative, but it's also promotional. Gather together, 
so you can be spurred on to greater love and good deeds. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not for men, that we would be better teachers because of Jesus. That we would be better contractors because of Jesus. That we would be better real estate developers and real estate salesmen because of Jesus. Better architects, better engineers, right? better plumbers because Jesus is king. Because we're a part of it going, yes, all of life is worship. All of life's for Jesus. Be generous. Do great work. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. When you receive a hamburger, you want it to be cooked at the right temperature. Cook the hamburger at the perfect temperature to hand it to them because you love them and because you're doing it for God. That's the power of the local church. It's crisis-oriented, it's preventative, and it's promotional, which leads me to my last thing. It's worth it. The local church, as many of you felt coming in, is like going to a really good restaurant and going, you know what, I should eat a salad but I want to eat a burger, right? Or I want to eat that chicken sandwich which has that mayo on it, that chipotle mayo which has gobs of calories in it. That's the way many of us look at the church. Like, I know I should do it. It's kind of like a salad. And I'm saying to you, no, it's a four-course meal with a steak with butter all over it. <laughs> or if you're a vegan, it's like a veg burger, right? The best one you've ever had. It isn't what we need, it is, but it's everything you've ever wanted. It's the community we've always wanted to be a part of, yet not perfect, it struggles and fails all the time, which means this, it's worth it. Your sense of, man, I really feel like I should meet with a leader or with a pastor to divulge these things to them to get help, do it. Make the step today, come and pray with somebody. Or you sit there at that moment, and you go, you know what, I've always kind of thought about taking the next step in service. They've mentioned the last few weeks that children's ministry needs volunteers in the summer. Think of the opportunity that is to minister to kids whose families are in crisis, to help prevent them from the ways that lead to death, and to help promote them into the way, the truth, and life. What an opportunity to be a part of a redemption community, to go through Launch Point, to become a member. Take the next step because God's saying we're prepared there to be life out there. Folks, this is not a gathering that's the end in and of itself. The church is to be the church for the life of the world. That what you do Monday through Friday, where you go on your weekends, that's not here is what it's all about. Here is here that we might spur each other on to love and good deeds and warn each other, that's not the way. That's not truth. That's not life. That's it. Connect with him so that you may know and so the, may, the world may know that Jesus has come to give life and give it to the full. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you. Thank you that you have come to offer this life. God, where we fail as a church and where we fail as individuals, which are many, I think about Paul saying, Christ came to die for sinners of whom I am chief. God, we say together, we're the chief, am chief among sinners but your grace is sufficient for us. Come meet us. Make us the people you want us to be. Let us take this next step. In Jesus' name, amen.